This is Corolla Digital. Hi, folks. It's Larry. Larry Miller. That's right. And I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening. It means the world to us over here. And if you like the show, please tell a friend. That's right. Bring a friend over and it will really help us grow. And it means a lot to everyone here. So please tell a friend. And, well, that means we'll be able to say for a long time, we'll see you here. Hey, everyone, it's me, Allison. This week on Allison Rosen is Your New Best Friend, I sat down with LeVar Burton, and we talked about being black in America, roots, religion, falling in love, which foods are the most difficult to eat in your car, and then I asked him if he feels the need to present a kid-friendly image because of reading Rainbow. I have a desire to be as authentic as I can be, and... And I also believe in, very firmly, in the idea of discernment and, and appropriateness. So, you know, there are, you know, there are times when I'm in a rowdy, bawdy mood, um, and, and I find an appropriate way to, you know, to get those yah-yahs out. Strip clubs. Um, <laughs> or, or bowling. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to Allison Rosen is your new best friend on iTunes or go to AllisonRosen.com. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. I love you. Allison's your new best friend. From Level 5 City in Glendale, it's This Week with Larry Miller. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who likes really expensive clothes. Hi, folks, and welcome back to This Week with Larry Miller. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And you know something? I know I say it every week, and I'm going to say it again now. That orchestra gets better every week. It makes me smile. And, of course, that's the Jack Duha Orchestra. And the Blanca de Anjou dancers, featuring boy tenor Willie Burns, who said, If women are the fairer sex, why do they need makeup? Which I thought, and Colonel Jeff thought, and Dr. Chris thought, was a very fair, good question. A very wise question. If women are the fairer sex, why do they need makeup? Now, the first part we're just going to leave. If, you, if you're wondering why are women even the fairer sex, I'm afraid this is the wrong show for you. But keep listening, by the way. But I'm afraid it's not the right show for you. Women are the fairer sex, and we're just going to leave it at that and just put that aside, okay? But if women are the fairer sex, why do they need makeup? Now, here's an interesting thing. This made me think this. And I think the colonel and the doctor agreed that most men, anyone I know, certainly I and the colonel and the doctor, don't need women to have, well, makeup on. Don't need to have women who have big Oscar night, that's in your house, by the way, but Oscar night makeup on and big uh, giant thick lipstick and giant thick eyeshadow and such. I don't need that. That doesn't make the woman more attractive to me. The things that women put on and themselves and in clothes, I know, I understand they want to put on because they enjoy it. It makes them feel good. And this is something for, by the way, not just today, but 100, 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 5,000 years, everything. Every society, if you just go with ancient Rome, then why not? Just go with ancient Rome. But they're all places where women always wore kinds of makeup, sort of uh, ink stripes on their fingers, you know, whatever it was. They always put makeup on and they, and thicker kinds of eyeshadows and all sorts of things in, uh, in castles in the Middle Ages, I think, that they're putting those cone hats on with a, with a banner coming down from the top of them. That's one of those where, of course, in those days... It wasn't the right time to say to the king, say, whose bright idea was that? Because the chances were pretty good. You would wind up, well, in a cell. And not for a day. 
It was one of those cells. I remember I was in Venice in Italy. Well, now it's in Italy. But you can see they still have the cells over the Bridge of Sighs. And uh, where you sigh, you're so, you know, retrospective and unhappy as you, after you after the Doge has sentenced you to well, to that's about it. In one of the cells, you know, you get thirty years, fifty years in one of those cells over the Bridge of Sighs. But those were not. I I saw those. They, you can still see them. And I'll tell you what, folks, you didn't want to be in there. It's not because it was so disgusting, but you realized. In those days, when they chained your wrists to those rings that were already in the wall there and sat you down on that floor, that was about it. The The answer to the question, hey, when do I have exercise, period, was, you know what? You really don't. And the, the, the ceilings were low. They weren't big, tall cell ceilings. They were just, a, well, you didn't need it because you were chained to the rings, but still they were less high than if you were standing up in there. And you realize those those fellows would sit there, and that was it for forever. If they ever got out and people said, how was it in there? The answer was going to be something like, you don't need to know, and I don't need to think about it again. So in any case, there was always makeup, and there was no period where women were not wearing makeup and sometimes very elaborate makeup. And so the answer to the question is, well, why do they need makeup? If women are the fairer sex, why do they need makeup? The main answer is they don't. They really don't. Not for men, anyway. If uh, if my wife, whom I love, and don't worry, she's not listening. That's not why I'm saying that. I'm saying it because it's the truth most of the time. But if if my my wife is is putting something on... Some fancy clothes, a dress, and uh, and uh, say some a pearl necklace. That's what it's come to mean to me. By the way, I've gotten her these things, but I don't know what they are. You know, I really don't. You know, if you say what's she wearing? Well, it's a fancy dress. Is she wearing any jewelry? Yeah, it's going to be a pearl thing. I, I I got her these things, and I'm glad she likes them. But when she says, "How do I look in this dress?" It's the I'm the one. I want to say, you know what? You're asking the wrong guy. I'm I'm married to you. I'm your husband. I love you, and I'll get you more things anytime you want something, and I, and that'll be great. But I don't need you to put that stuff on. So uh, I don't need you to put makeup on, and I don't need you to put that that dress on. And now, if you like it, and your friends Susie and Amber like it and you like what they're wearing, that's fine. But I can promise you, their husbands don't need them to wear those either. So in any case, the answer to Willie Burns' question, if women are the fairer sex, why do they need makeup, is, Willie, they don't. You've hit on a very deep thought there. They Let's just agree that they're the fairer sex, but why do they need makeup? No, they don't. Now, if the question is, why do they wear makeup? Well, that's a whole show in itself. That's that's a 19-volume show of, you know what? Because they I, I don't they like it. I don't agree with the the old thing of, well, that's just men made them do that. I I, I no men I know, I mean, would would say, you know what? We're going to paint your face now. No one I know, no one I've ever known, not in high school, not in college, not in show business. Not now, with Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris in the studio there. Uh, so why do they need it? They don't need it. Why do they want it? Well, because they do. Because they're the fairer sex. And by Amazon. That's right, Amazon. We are brought to you by Amazon, and we like being brought to you by Amazon. Amazon, as you know, is the place you go. When you want anything in the world you can think of, whatever you can think of, you open your computer, you open your phone, you open any screen you have, and you go right to Amazon, right? Wrong! You don't. That's wrong. Don't you know by now you don't do that. You don't open anything and go to Amazon. Never do that. What you do is you open those things and go to our website for the show here. Ha-ha. Yes. You go to our website. 
which is LarryMillerPodcast.com. Who's on the mountain? Tom Mix. You go to LarryMillerPodcast.com, and we have a banner on the front page. Is it there? I've only said this a thousand times, so I really don't know. It, it It's on the front page, and the banner says Amazon. It's not a big banner, not a huge banner, but it's on there, and it says Amazon. You click that, and you go to Amazon on that, and that takes you to Amazon, and now you get whatever you want. And Amazon is happy because they sell all sorts of things to you, and you're happy because you get the things you want. And we're happy, though, because when you get them through us, after hitting our banner... That says Amazon on LarryMillerPodcast.com. When you get them through us, we get some of the dough. Amazon has a deal with us, and they send us a percentage of what you order. And it's, uh, well, it's not enough, to, not, not enough to start our own company, but it's awfully nicer than when we like the deal and we like that it's all set up. So thank you. Hit that button that says Amazon on our podcast, LarryMillerPodcast.com, and now we'll all be happy. And uh, we have something I haven't done in a while here right now. We have Effecta Update. That's right, Effecta Update. An update of the Fecta. The Fecta Update. Now, as you know, most of you know, but many of you don't, that when I and most sane Americans and people get little pieces of soap after that's in the shower and they've been washing for a long time, they don't throw that out. What you do is you mash it with your hands into another piece of soap, usually small soaps, and it just keeps it going and you get good use out of that. And you can clean everything you want to clean, and that's what you do with soap. And I came back from my last trip. I got back last night, and I had four different cities... And four different flights, and four different shows, and four different hotels. And every hotel was so nice because they insisted that I take their soap. That's right. The manager of the hotel came up to the room and waited till I took the Do Not Disturb sign off before he knocked with his key. And he said, we want you to have the soap in your room. And uh, I said... That's an amazing coincidence because I already took it. But thank you so much. And what I did was I thought that as a FECTA update, to show you what I'm going to be using now to get back into the world of the FECTA, the perfecta, the du dual FECTA, the trifecta, the quadrifecta, and the five FECTA, we used to say that was the perfect number to get to, a five FECTA. That means you have five tiny bars of leftover soap, and you mash those together into one. And so I took a picture. I got back last night. I took a picture of the four bars of soap, including one I'm already using next to the sink when I shave, and those four bars. There's a picture on our website. Once again, LarryMillerPodcast.com. And maybe it's even near the Amazon banner. And so if you go to our go to our Facebook page, I had to <laughs> look through the window to make sure I was saying the right thing. That's what happens, though. You go to our Facebook page and you'll see the new FECTA, everything I'm going to use. It's not together. It's not pressed together yet. But these are the soaps. Four different hotels, four different colored soap, four different shaped soap. And now, because I'm back in the game... Back on the road, now the soap on the road will be coming to me. Wow, that was almost like saying soap on a rope. But that always struck me as a little dumb, soap on a rope. If you have soap on a rope and you think that's cool, I think maybe you should be on a rope. But in any case, go to our website and see what I will be using as Effecta. And they're brand new now. Which brings us to, luckily, the joke of the week. That's right, the joke of the week. The joke of the week. One of my favorite parts of the show. I get to tell what I love very much, which is a good joke every week. And I'm glad you like it, and I'm glad Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris like it. And a lot of times they're ones you just have in your head. Sometimes I remember one. 
Sometimes Dr. Chris remembers one. Sometimes Colonel Jeff remembers one. And this is another joke that I haven't done yet from the hundred funniest jokes in human history that Colonel Jeff found on the computer. And it's a pretty good one, so I'm going I'm to tell it to you now for the joke of the week. Here we go. <clears throat> a guy meets a hooker in a bar. Boy, if, if, you, if I had a nickel for every time that's happened, huh? But a guy meets a hooker in a bar, and she says to him, This is your lucky night. I've got a special game for you. I'll do absolutely anything you want for $300, as long as you can say it in three words. And the guy looks at her and thinks for a second, and he says, uh, well, to himself, he says, well, hey, why not? He pulls his wallet out of his pocket and one at a time lays $300 bills on the bar and says, slowly paint my house. So those are the three words he picked, and that's what he really wants from this hooker. I, I was saying to the colonel that he might have said, if she, if she is a hooker, and that's the game she plays with potential customers, you know, give me $300, and anything you want, as long as you can say it in three words, I might have said, if I were that guy, I might have said, well, you must have heard some wild things in your time, because if this is your work, if this is your the business you're in, and you do this this game, this trick, that you've got to run into guys who say some pretty odd or wild things. And I like that it wasn't sexy also, that it wasn't sexual, that he says, well, what do I want? Sure, here's $300. Paint my house. And it's, it's funny that for that joke, that it has to be slow. I don't know. He says it slowly. And somehow that adds to the joke. So in any case, well, that's not bad. That's not a bad... Uh, that's not a bad joke. Paint my house. So I hope you like that, which leads us to the poetry corner. That's right, the poetry corner, the corner of poetry. The, the great love I have and Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris have for poetry, and that's the truth. It really is such a wonderful way to say things in life. Poets are uh, really great creative people, great artists who find when they're good and when the poems are good, it really finds a new way to look at life and to think of things. So this is from the wonderful Stephen Crane, who had uh, a very short life. It was 1871 to 1900. He was 28 years old when he got tuberculosis and died in... Uh, well, in a small little hospital in Germany, right? And in any case, though, he was very well known. And he wrote a book. He never served in the Army, but he wrote a book that I read with my English class in whatever that is, 7th grade, 8th grade, called The Red Badge of Courage. And I remember that as a good book. and It was very moving. Here we are, a good poem by Stephen Crane called do not do not weep, maiden, for war is kind. Here we go. <clears throat> do not weep, maiden, for war is kind, because your lover threw wild hands toward the sky and the affrighted steed ran on alone. Do not weep, war is kind. Hoarse, booming drums of the regiment, little souls who thirst for fight. These men were born to drill and die. The unexplained glory flies above them. Great is the battle god, great, and his kingdom, a field where a thousand corpses lie. Do not weep, babe, for war is kind, because your father tumbled in the yellow trenches, raged at his breast, gulped and died, do not weep, war is kind. Swift, blazing flag of the regiment, eagle with crest of red and gold, these men were born to drill and die. Point for them the virtue of slaughter. Make plain to them the excellence of killing and a field where a thousand corpses lie. Mother whose heart 
hung humble as a button on the bright splendid shroud of your son, do not weep. War is kind. Now, as Colonel Jeff and I were saying to each other afterwards, obviously that's a, well, that's a, that's a, that's a blunt and, and a, almost a frightening poem there. But the way he chooses to say it, oh, don't weep, war is kind. The, the sarcasm and the way the structure of that seems to work is very moving. So thank you, Stephen Crane, and thank you, folks. I hope you like that one. Stephen Crane, we'll, we'll be visiting him again. And that brings us to another one of our sections that I love so much is the magic movie moment. That's right, the magic movie moment. This is a moment or a piece of dialogue or a scene that you love in a movie you've seen many times. It could be a movie you've just seen for the first time, but usually it means to me something you've seen many times and look forward to. You say to yourself, I can't wait for that scene to come up. I'm glad I just turned this on. I'm glad I flipped around to it on the channel. Oh, and I'm glad I caught it because that scene is about to come on in five minutes. That scene I like so much. Maybe it has to do with the movie. Maybe it really doesn't. Maybe it's just a way one of the actors looks at another actor. But that's what a magic movie moment is. It keeps you really loving movies as much as love of a great movie does on its own. And this week, it's something where, well, Colonel Jeff and I started talking, and this is about a kind of movie in general. We got, we got talking about something that, well, I'm sure you've talked about before, too, and it's two names, James and Bond. That's right, James Bond. And... There is obviously a huge industry about the James Bond world and the James Bond movies. And I've said before, and it's it's true, I've, I've seen every James Bond movie, and I've seen every James Bond movie with every James Bond. And as you know, with the last four or five fellows who've played them, they're great pros, they're actors, they're terrific, and everyone else in the movie is a great pro and a great actor, and they're well-made, and the director's direct, and everyone cuts it. It's edited well. But as you know, they're just not great. They're okay. They're usually the, the last, oh, 10, 20 James Bond movies made are okay, or sometimes kind of okay, or sometimes, well, they're okay, they're pretty good, but they're never fabulous. And to me... One of the things that I've always wanted to think about, to talk about, to write about, and today we're talking about it, is why, yes, it's true, why the Sean Connery James Bond movies were so great and why the others just aren't. And having Sean Connery isn't is a big part of that. Having him in the movie, that is to say, is a big part of why they're so great. But it's actually not the entire part because the new James Bonds even if they're not James Bond, even if there's something else, like The Bourne Identity with with Matt Damon, even those movies, they, they make the hero something of a superhero. Well, he went through the secret CIA program, and now, as you can see, he runs as fast as a Ferrari. But whatever they do to him, they have to make him super because they think, and no doubt many of you think, that's what you need to see to be really thrilled by a hero, by an agent, by a spy. But it's not that at all. It's not that at all. And in the last four or five characters, the fellows who've played James Bond, and I have a lot of respect for them. They're terrific actors. I think Daniel Daniel Craig is terrific. And Pierce Brosnan and Roger Moore. And uh, all the fellows who've played that part are very hard workers, and they try hard. And the same with the directors and the other actors. They all try hard, but what they've done is they thought they needed to change it after James Bond. They thought, maybe we'll have the woman save him. Maybe she fights, too. Everything they thought of sounds around a conference table like a good idea, but it's not. It never, ever is. What you need is when Sean Connery played James Bond, he saved the women. He saved himself. 
He was very sexually appealing to the women. He didn't have to say trick things. They fell all over him as soon as they glanced at him in a casino when he walked by. And the truth is, that's part of what I love about James Bond. It's not that it makes sense. It's not that it saves the world, even though it does those things. It's that somehow he's heroic without being a superhero, with, without using anything that has to be generated by a computer, without flying off a ski slope on a kite that has rockets in it. It's, it's not that. When Sean Connery was in the opening fight scenes of his movies, they were really interesting, desperate scenes, but something you thought, well, James Bond can get out of that, meaning the Sean Connery James Bond could get out of that. And the other fellows are all fine, but they're not James Bond. And even when people say sometimes, well, he got married once in one of the movies. He married Diana Rigg, James Bond married Diana Rigg. But that wasn't Sean Connery. That was George Lazenby, whom I don't know. And I'm again, the same thing I have respect for him, but he made one James Bond movie, and he was the one who married Diana Rigg, and then that didn't work out. And that's fine, by the way, but I'm just saying... That's not what I want in a James Bond movie. What I want is someone who loves his life the way it is, and he's very good at it. He knows what to say, and when his boss, M, is meeting with the Minister of Finance or the Minister of Oil or whatever it is these guys are, Bond always knows, as you know, Sean Connery always knew exactly what they were talking about. He knew everything about whatever the topic was, and he wasn't showing off by saying that. He was just being the real James Bond. And you know what, folks? The truth is that what's going to make the magic movie moment for me this week, and I hope for you, is the fact that the older James Bond used to be a real hero who could just do these things well, who fought well and could save himself. He didn't need trickery to save himself. He was just better at it than the bad guys. And I really like that, and that's why the magic movie moment for me is something that always lived this way. And I think it was the first James Bond movie. I think it might have been Dr. No, and I really don't know. Maybe one of you will will send this in to our Facebook here. But... It's sort of the first time he introduces himself to the world because he's dressed, he's in a tuxedo, he goes to the casino in, I don't know, France or someplace like that, and he sits down at that goofy game, Baccarat. Even if you like Baccarat, by the way, it's still a goofy game to me, but not with James Bond, and he sits down there. He sits at the table, and they come around to him, and they ask who he is, and that's the first time you see him, I think, The other times, I think they shoot him from the back sitting down, and then the camera comes around, and it's on him, and he's lighting a cigarette with a lighter, and then his eyes just rotate upward a little, and the actual line is, he just, he says, Bond, James Bond. But it's so cool the way he said, and he's lighting a cigarette for goodness sake, but I mean, he lights that, he's got it in his mouth as he just looks up as the eyes rotate, and he says, Bond, James Bond. And no one has ever been able to say that since. I told the colonel before, as soon as he said Bond, James Bond, that way, and joined that game and started that movie, there should have been a law passed in England that no other actor can ever say that name again. And that's why it became a magic movie moment for me. I look forward to it every time. It's just a tiny moment, but it's not tiny. It's huge, and it really describes exactly what we're looking for, exactly what we expect, and exactly what we know we'll get. It's Sean Connery saying the exact right thing. And you know, this guy, that character, that actor, will play this just the way I want to see it. He will beat up the bad guys he will love any woman he wants, and they all want him. And he'll he'll always be sophisticated in anything he does, but with a little wit to it. He was always he was always absorbing and funny in all his things. But that was all said 
the physicality and the danger and the brilliance was all said when he rolled those eyes up, rotated them up, and looked at the dealer and just said, Bond, James Bond. That moment tells the whole story of why those movies are great and why that character is great and why that actor is always so great. So you know what? That's my magic movie moment for this week. They're all fine, but they're not James Bond. And you know what? I like James Bond, and I will always watch every other movie. I've seen every other James Bond, and I've seen them three, five, seven times in each movie. But you know what? They're not the same. They're not the same as Sean Connery, and they never will be. And I'm okay saying that. I'll still always see the others, but my kids agree, too. They say, how's that movie? We just see, we always see the new one. Oh, it's pretty good, yeah. And uh, and I don't always say this. I'm not the one who says, but it's not Sean Connery. They are. They they, they understand the difference. And uh, and my, my wife does, too. So in any case, that's the magic movie moment. And my wife came up to me today, by the way, before I came to the show, and she said, what time do you uh, finish with the podcast? And... Right off the bat, when a wife asks you that, by the way, you can just tell that means no need fighting it. But you know what that means, because she's got an idea to do something. And so I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to make something up. So, And she knows how, how long and what, what time it is. But that's all right. And I, I said, well, I'm usually, you know, usually home by uh, 5 or 5.30. And she just immediately said... Okay, good, because you need a new suit, and as soon as you get home, we're going to go out and get you one. And that's a classic married moment of, you know what, once you've been married, you can't do that in the first year of a marriage, but once you've been married 8, 10, 15 years, once you've gotten on a little bit, a husband with brains, and we don't have brains, but every so often we do have brains, and a husband with brains knows there's nothing to say back to that. Now, if my wife says to me, oh, good, well, as soon as you get home, you need a new suit, so we'll go out and get you one. As soon as she says that, what can I possibly say to it? What can I answer to that? Well, I'd rather not. How can I say that? Well, gee, honey, I was thinking instead of really taking off my topsiders and getting into bed and watching an old James Bond movie or reading a book, maybe an old James Bond book. But the truth is, there's nothing to say to that. And... We are going to get a new suit because also, by the way, I'm going to be on Bill Maher's show this week, and that's on a Friday night. And uh, there's also an interesting anniversary. This is, this is right now, last Friday night was the 20th anniversary. Isn't it amazing always how time passes? The 20th anniversary, 20 years since uh, Bill Maher has had his show on the air. And that first, the very first episode, was I was on that show. The, the the very first episode 20 years ago was me and uh, Jerry Seinfeld, whom you know, and Robin Givens, who you know, and someone else I can't remember. But that was the very first episode, and they're going to have a tribute to it. They had, Bill mentioned it last Friday, and then they're going to have a tribute this Friday too. But I'm going to be on the show. So my wife wanted me to wear a nicer suit than the ones I have a nicer suit than the ones I took to perform in Stockton and Bakersfield and Galveston this last five days. And uh, so far as I know, by the way, on the Bill Parr show, they don't give you fresh soap or brand-new soap. At any rate, though, the thing about suits is that the first time it reminded me, the, the first time to get on The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was hosting was a very big thing, and every comic wanted it. And I was lucky, and the friends I had were lucky, and we, we were picked for it. Not right away, but we got on and got on the right way. Eventually, we pulled it together enough to have, uh, it was Jim McCauley at the time, who was the producer in charge of getting the acts on the show, and he's passed on since. And uh, he's up there somewhere smiling right now. But uh, we got on the show, and that was a big thing to do. And when I got on, Seinfeld said to me, okay, you need a new suit. You can't wear the suits you've been wearing. You need a new suit. We have to go to a fancy suit store, and you have to get a fancy suit. 
And that's what we're going to do. That was the same thing, by the way. I didn't say, I don't want to. I'd rather go back to the apartment and take my shoes off. So I said, okay, well, he, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So I went with him to a suit store in Beverly Hills, a very fancy place, and I knew you could tell it was fancy. It's one of those stores that doesn't have a front to it, doesn't have a name on the front, doesn't have a facade. It's just covered with ivy, and you go around the back, and it's sort of standing on its own, and you park in the back, and there's a door in the back, and you go in, and it was Armani suits, and as I've been fond of saying, that's why they call them Armani suits, because that's when, uh, they what they really want to say to you is, that's when your money is our money. At any rate, they... They we walked in there and it was all. I had never had a suit like that. It was it was very expensive. Still expensive today, not insanely expensive. I mean, a little crazy, but not madness. And then I got a shirt there, also a dress shirt to go with the suit. It was a black double-breasted suit that was made of I don't know wool, I guess. And uh, they well they pinned it up and they you know they took the the figures they were gonna. Well, change it up and 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 uh, and sew it the right way. So a black double-breasted suit, a white shirt, a dress shirt, and two ties. And I still have the two ties. And it was pretty expensive stuff. The ties I remember were a hundred and fifty dollars each. So that's three hundred dollars for ties. And that's okay. And they had a shoe department there, and I got a pair of shoes to go with it. And they were just as fancy or cool as they should be for that kind of suit. Now, the point of all this is they have the suit there, and the Tonight Show was coming. I was going to go there and perform on it and uh, and film it there, and they were going to show it. It's about two weeks later, which is perfect. The suit was just about to be done. And I went over in my car and uh, with my agent, Tom Stern, at the time, and we went over to the store. It was ready, and they gave me the suit behind the counter, and they said, good luck, have a have a good show on The Tonight Show. I said, thank you very much. This was in Beverly Hills, remember, in The Tonight Show at NBC. NBC is in Burbank, California. And uh, so we drove over there in the afternoon, and I love getting to shows early. I love getting to everything early, and I just, I just, I, I, I just hung the suit up in the dressing room there, and... Uh, with the fancy bag around it, the plastic bag and the zipper, and the same with the shirt, and I hung it in the in the closet, and I was in, you get your own dressing room, and there we are, and we walked out on stage. It was uh, still empty, of course. It was only about, oh, three in the afternoon, and uh, the show taped at 5 or 5.15 in those days, and so I walked out just to be on the stage, just to look at where I'll be standing so that when you come through the curtain, the spot you stand on, it's not Johnny's spot because Johnny Carson, as you may remember, had his own spot to stand on. And there was that was pretty cool, I thought, that he had his own spot and the other comics have their spot. And I thought that was pretty neat. And I sat with Tom in the room and we got, uh, they had a refrigerator there that was always filled with beer, but you could get a soda too. And uh, I went and said hello to the folks and got some makeup on. Plenty of time. And that's what that's what the key is. I like having plenty of time. And I was feeling great, and I'm going on The Tonight Show, and I've been working on this comedy, and I've been shining that spot up and stitching it together, and I was doing the work I'm proud to do to make that shot as good as I could, and I was feeling great about it. It was a great shot, and I was going to make it a great shot. And sure enough, when the show came to starting, I... I said, all right, now time to get dressed. And I put the, take my clothes off, put the uh, dress socks on and the dress shoes on with just my underwear. And then I take out everything. I'm going to put the shirt on first and put the tie on the shirt. And then I open the suit. It didn't have pants. That's the point. There were no pants. I opened up the case, took out the jacket on the hanger, there were no pants on the hanger. And Tom sensed something. He was behind me in the dressing room. He said, is something wrong? And I just turned to him with an ashen expression and just said, no pants. He said, 
what? That's the only thing you can say to that. I said, no pants. There are no pants. They forgot to put the pants on the hanger. And he said, well, now there were those in those days. So this was, brother, let's see. This was about 88 or something like that. They still had phones in the dressing rooms. I immediately walked over to the phone and called the place up. The number was on the suit wrapper, but I, I knew the number in my head anyway. And I called them up, and they, they answered, I, and they just said, oh, hi, how's it going? And I just said, no pants. There are no pants. You didn't put the pants with the jacket. The pants are still in the store. And they, when I said they said, oh, good Lord, hold on a second. And they went to, je- went to check, and they said, well, you're right. The pants are right here. I'm holding the pants. And I said, I need pants. What do I do for pants? And they said, listen, don't worry. We'll send them right over. Send them right over. Look, folks, this is, remember, they're in Beverly Hills. NBC is in Burbank. Send them over. It's now 5 o'clock. The show is about to tape. Send them over. In the middle of the night, by missile, you could get them to NBC in that amount of time, in another 15 minutes or so. But this is this is rush hour. You can't do that. This is going to be, the show will be finished by the time they can get there. And I said, you, you, you're not going to make it. And I said, I've got to find, I'll find pants here. And they said, we'll make it. We'll be over there. And we hung up and I just said, they said they're going to bring it, but they're never going to make it. And Tom, who I still like a lot, by the way, Tom was starting to panic. And he said, all right, wait, wait. All right, hold on. Wait, we'll get, we'll get the people from the wardrobe here. Wait, hold on, hold on. And he ran out and he just said, Jim, he started calling for Jim McCauley. Jim, Jim. And he turned right, just right outside the dressing room where there's a wall. It's a concrete wall. He ran right into the concrete wall and walloped his head the forehead right into the concrete wall and you really if you heard it the way i did and saw it the way i did you would do what i did which is which is just go ooh it was it was a bad wallop and he goes bong in fact there was almost a ringing bong to it and he kind of bounced back a little and his eyes got a little out of focus and i said tom you all right tom and jim McCauley came around the corner he said Hi, what's up? Is something wrong? And I said, no pants. They don't have pants for the jacket. Now, I had just worn some pa- a pair of jeans down with me and sneakers. And I said, he said, what do pants do you have? I had these blue jeans. He said, well, you, you, can't, you don't want to wear that. You can't wear that. He got the woman from wardrobe to come down, and they found me a very nice pair of black dress pants to go with the double-breasted black jacket. The only problem was they were last worn by William Conrad or someone his size. It had to be a waist that was at least 80 inches big. It was a huge waist. It was unbelievable. It was like a joke scene. And I looked at her and I looked at McCauley and I said, oh, come on, you're kidding, right? I can't wear these. This is like a clown show now. And they put them on me. Folks, they had to pin it. And they're nice people. And she was very nice. And and she pinned the pants behind me, and they had, you know how that happens when the, it went out a foot and a half from behind me after she pinned it, and I said, oh, this is crazy. She said, I don't have time to clip it and cut it and, and tailor it. And I said, I know, I know. She said, listen, I'm just going to, I'm just going to stitch this up right in the back and it'll go out in the back like that, but you can just fold it down with your hand and put the jacket around it and it'll be fine. I didn't think it was going to be fine, but all right, all right. And she went away and Jim says, don't worry, you know, it's going to be, the show had already started now. You understand the show was on. Now the first guest, Johnny had already done the monologue and the first guest was on. And so there's really not a lot of time to argue about this. And, so she goes over to, to fix the pants. She takes the pants away. Jim says, listen, don't worry. I'm going to go check on the rest of the show, make sure the other guest is this or that. And he go, does that. Tom, who whose forehead now had swelled out, there was a when there. It was like it was like a robin's egg, but it wasn't blue. It was, it was a pretty big lump, and it was round. And I thought, oh, good Lord, Tom, you've got to sit down. We've got to get you some ice or a steak or something like that or a hammer, just anything to to knock that down. He said, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait outside for the, for the car and the truck 
from the from the from the clothing store to make it, and then I will run the pants right back in as soon as they get here. And I said, Tom, I don't listen. I don't think they're going to make it. Let's just figure out. He just said, No, you do that with the other pants. He said, I'm going to wait outside, and I'm going to wait for the truck from the clothing store. And he runs out. He runs out of the studio, and he runs down the hall in the big build building at NBC there, and he runs outside to wait out front for the truck from the clothing store. Now, I'm not a big panicky type. I'm really not. I'm not so tough, but most of the things that people panic about, I, I, I thought to myself, you know what? This is just kind of funny, and I'll get through it. It's going to be a great shot, and I'll do whatever it is I have to do. I sure don't want to wear those the fat man pants, though. I don't want to wear those. And I, she came back, the woman from wardrobe, and I saw them. It was, it was not good to look at. You know, I didn't even put them on. I said, oh, good Lord, look at that. And there was such a giant piece of material in the back. Wearing, not wearing the pants, wearing the shoes and the socks, the underwear, the shirt and the tie, and having the jacket on, and carrying the pants when it was time for me to go on. I'm not wearing the pants, the fat pants. And Jim walked me to a place I knew because I had walked other friends to that place behind the curtain, which is a very deep thing for a comic. Now it's you. You're getting to be behind the curtain to go on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. It was a it was a pretty big moment, but I wasn't wearing pants. And I'm carrying them, and he said, why don't you put the pants on? I said, I, I don't even want to wear them till." You know, it gets closer now. They go to commercial before I'm going on. I'm about to go on. I'm behind the curtain. And by the way, Jim's not going to pull the curtain. There's a guy there whose job was just to pull the curtain. And he was a beefy, muscular, tall guy. Looked like an ex-linebacker or an ex-lineman in football. And there was a reason for that because his job was he had one hand on the curtain and he gently put the other hand on your back and got you into place because his job was, you're going out there. That's his job. Even if you change your mind, you're going out there. I don't care what you do when you're out there. If you want to stand there and weep, that's fine. But you're going out there because that's my job, and I have never failed at my job. And he's got me there. They come back from commercial. Now, if you've seen new comics go on and those, uh, whether it was Johnny Carson or anyone else, Johnny, God bless him, always did the same way. The band would end, da 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 And you could hear the pencil tap on the desk a couple of times and hear Johnny's voice. Remember, we're behind the curtains. And I could hear Johnny's voice saying, you know, there's nothing I like better than a good new comic. And uh, we have someone on the show here for the first time and... Uh, I'm really looking forward to the Now, I'm not wearing the pants. I'm still not wearing the pants. And this is when Jim said to me, he whispered, you better put the pants on now. Now is the time. Put the pants on now. And I said, calmly, I said, you know, you're right. It's time to put the pants on. I said, all right, there you are. That's, that's it. You know, and I put one leg in, and then I put the other leg in. And, and Johnny is in the introduction for me. And he's saying, and next week he'll be at the Punchline in Atlanta or whatever, wherever I was going to be. And I got to where I had to button them up, and I just, oh. And I buttoned them up. One button just got the hook done. At that second, Tom comes running around through the studio right to where we are behind the curtains, and he's holding the pants. He said, I got the pants. I got the pants. They made it with the pants. And Jim said to him, shh, shh. It's the introduction. And I, I, I looked at John, I looked at Jim, and I looked at Tom, and this is as the introduction is coming to the end. As fast as I could, I unhooked the pants I was wearing, the fat man pants, and I took them off and kicked them off and put them down, and I grabbed the pants from Tom, whose head was now really swollen, by the way. And I grabbed the pants from Tom, and I put one leg in, I put the other leg, leg in, and I got them hooked, and I got, I got the shirt in, tucked in, just as you hear the first R in Larry, where he's going to say, so please welcome Larry Miller. And on the first R in Larry, I just got the pants closed, and I realized Tom held out the belt. I didn't have time to put the belt on. And on the second R, I just 
Well, I started to buckle the coat shut as the beefy stage manager with his hand on the curtain put his hand on my back. Because remember, I'm going out there. I was going to go out there anyway, but his job is you're going out there. So just as Johnny got to the L's of Miller, so Larry Miller, I, I got the jacket buttoned. The second I got it buttoned, the instant I got it buttoned, this guy pulls the curtain, pushes me out, and there we are. The band plays that da-da-da, 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 the thing they always played for comics in those days. And I walked out and hit the spot, and I thought, how do you like that? This is a funny business. Show business is crazy. And you know what? I had a great set. I was very happy. And I got what every young comic wanted from that stage. I did a great set. I was very happy. The audience really liked it. They did everything I would want them to do with, well, laughing and applause. And it was very, very good. And at the end, as you bow your head and hold one hand up to wave thank you, and step one foot backwards, and then just look over at Johnny, which every young comic did, and you wait, because what you're looking for, you want to get the OK sign from Johnny, which, as you know, was the hand and the O, and the, you know, it just smiled at you, and I got that. That's what you want to get. Oh, every so often, one or two comics, once in a million years, will get called right over to the couch the first time. But you know what? If you got that OK from Johnny, you were thrilled. And I got it, and I was thrilled, and I walked back through the... I waved to him, and I went back through the curtain to backstage, and I just looked at Jim and Tom. Jim had sweated through his clothes, and Tom, well, had a lump the size of a volleyball on his head. It was very, very big lump. And I said, you know, we walked back, to the to the dressing room there, and I said, well, you got the pants. He said, I got the pants. I got the pants. Tom, God bless him, was about to pass out. But you know what? That was a pretty good Tonight Show suit story, and I'm glad it was me. Would it, would it have worked out if I wore the William Conrad pants? Oh, sure. You know what? It would have been fine, and I would have unbuttoned the jacket so it didn't look like it was poofing out in the back there. It would have been fine. It would have been dandy. But you know what? Getting the original pants meant it could be great. And you know what? It was. And I was very happy. So, you know what? Remember, folks, that uh, as you know, Homer is Homer and Pluto is a planet. And those are good truths along with a good pair of pants. And as always, remember... If you got out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And that still is the truest thing I know. Have a great week, and we'll see you here next time. Miller. Larry Miller.